This morning we will be considering Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. These are the words of God. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, open your word to us by the Holy Spirit in all its fullness. We pray, Lord, that you would transform us by this word. Give us the renewing of our minds and the likeness of Christ, that we may be your faithful servants and witnesses in this day. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been looking at four areas that are focused in on by chapter 13 of Hebrews as being crucial to our worship and our witness. We've already looked at love in the local church. We've looked at marriage and its sexual union. And today we look at the third topic, which is contentment. Being content in the Bible means being at peace with what God has given you, both who he has made you and the things that he has given you. And so verse 5 says, be content with what you have. That's literally the way the Greek reads. And so contentment in the Bible is the opposite of covetousness. Covetousness is the desire for something that someone else has, but you lack. Covetousness comes from not being at peace with what God has given you, whether in terms of God, who God has made you, your personal traits, and so forth, or the circumstances in which he has placed you, or the things that he has given you. Covetousness comes from the feeling, the conviction, that your happiness depends on obtaining something that others have but that you lack. And covetousness always brings with it its evil fraternal twin, which is envy. Now, covetousness and envy are not identical. Covetousness is your desire for something that your neighbor has, while envy is your attitude toward your neighbor who has what you want. So covetousness and envy are not identical, but they always travel together. If one pays you a visit, the other is coming along too. Now we said that envy is your attitude towards your neighbor who has what you want. Envy always involves a fixation on your neighbor or neighbors who have what you want. But that fixation can manifest itself in a couple of different ways. One way is in a desire to be like the one who has what you want. You want to be like them. You want to imitate them. You want to be part of their circle. We see this form of envy addressed in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 1. Do not be envious of evil men nor desire to be with them. This is one who wants to be like them, to be around them, and and to imitate them. 
But there's another way that envy can manifest itself when it fixates on a neighbor or neighbors who have what you want, and that is in an attitude of resentment, an attitude of ill will toward your neighbor because they have the thing that you lack. And we see this showing up a number of places in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 26, 14 and 15, the Philistines envy Isaac because of the prosperity that God has given him, all the flocks and herds and servants. And so what do they do? What is their attitude? Do they want to be like Isaac? Do they want to hang around Isaac? No, they stop up all the wells he was using to water his flocks, and they were wells that his father Abraham had dug previously. Acts chapter 7 verse 9 tells us that it was because of envy that Joseph's brothers first intended to kill him, but then ended up selling him into Egyptian slavery. Two of the Gospels tell us that it was because of envy that the leaders of Israel handed Jesus over for crucifixion. They were covetous of what he had. They were covetous of his influence. They were covetous of his following. They were covetous of his popularity. That's what they wanted. But it manifested in an attitude toward Jesus that wanted to destroy him. It was ill will and malice. And so they framed him and they arranged for Pilate to crucify him. Now, interesting, both in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, we're told that it was Pilate. Pilate knew that the leaders handed Jesus up to him because of envy. Now, it's interesting because Pilate is not a believer, but yet I would submit to you that he is offered in the pages of Scripture as what you would call in a court case an expert witness. Pilate was a fallen, ancient politician. And in in fallen politics for sure, in the fallen world generally, but especially in fallen politics, envy and covetousness is what makes the world go round. He was an expert on envy. He knew it when he saw it. And he knew what was motivating them. It was envy. And we see similarly destructive effects of envy and covetousness in our day. Just a few weeks ago, billionaire investor Charlie Munger, he's Warren Buffett's right-hand man, and uh, so he's made a couple of billion off of investing. But he noted just a few weeks ago how in our day wealth, living standards, convenience, have skyrocketed worldwide over the last two centuries. While things like slavery, racial inequality, poverty, childhood death, death due to disease and accident have all plummeted. And yet people are more unhappy, dissatisfied, and angry today than they were 200 years ago when things objectively were far more difficult. And according to Munger, this has one simple explanation. The world is not driven by greed. It is driven by envy. 
the fact that everyone today is many times better off than they used to be, that is taken for granted. All anyone can think about is that somebody else has something that they don't, and they regard it as a matter of fundamental unfairness and injustice that that difference exists. And so they want to destroy the difference, and they want to use governmental coercion, power, lobbying, and all these different things as ways to eliminate the difference. You see this same phenomena in the most famous court case of the Old Testament, which was the case of the two women who came before King Solomon claiming the same baby, 1 Kings chapter 3. Now, the two women had obviously been best friends. They shared the same house. They had everything in common. They even got pregnant at the same time and had babies at the same time. But then suddenly a difference arose between them. When one of those baby when one of the babies suffocated in the night, and now moved by envy and coveting, the mother of the baby who died switched babies with her former best friend, the live one for the dead one. And now the women come before Solomon, who says to take the child and cut it in two and give half to each. Now, of course, what he was doing is outing the real mother from the false mother. The real mother, of course, wants to save the life of the baby and says, no, Give her the child. Do not cut it in two. But what does the false mother say? What does the one who is gripped with envy say? She says, cut it in two. That way, neither of us will have a baby. Now, that's the face of envy, the fraternal twin of coveting. That's what they do to people. And we can see that same face everywhere today. Envy and coveting are two of the tyrant's favorite tools. Stirring up a people with envy and covetousness makes them easy to manipulate, easy to control, easy to subjugate. That's why God in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 18, specified that civil leaders in Israel all the way down to leaders of 10. A leader of 10 had to be men who feared God. In other words, the the center point of their life, the anchor of their life, the north star of their life of which they guided everything was the fear of the Lord. And therefore, they were men of truth and they had to be men who hated covetousness. They, it wasn't enough that they, ju- that they weren't doing something that was obviously covetous. No, they had to be men who hated covetousness. They hated it. They hated the manipulation. They hate what it does to people. And they hate that whole way of using things to try to advance yourself in that way to be qualified even to be a civil ruler over ten families. Well, such is the evil effect of envy and covetousness on any society, any group, any friendship. And that includes the local church. 
James says in his epistle that wherever you have envy and self-seeking, including in the church, they're going to bring chaos and every evil thing. James 3.16. Writing to Jewish Christians in congregations that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, most of whom James had never met, most of these churches he's never been to, he doesn't know anything particular about any of them, and yet he says to all of them, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures and the stuff you want that wage war in your member? You desire, you want, and you do not have. So you commit murder. Now, he's not talking about homicide. He's not talking about that. He's talking about sucking the life out of your neighbor. You see, Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 is the second greatest commandment on that one plus love God with all you are and all you have. He says everything hangs on those two commandments. When you look at the context of love your neighbor at yourself, what is it talking about? It's actually talking about forms of murder of which homicide is just the most advanced. But there are a lot of lesser forms of murder like killing your neighbor's good name because you're going around and telling tales and whispering. Those kind of things. Bearing a grudge against your neighbor. All those are forms of sucking the life out of your neighbor. And therefore, it's a form of biblical murder. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the way it's pictured there is that we're either adding life to our neighbor, or we're sucking life out of them. And that's what James is talking about here. You want and do not have, so you commit murder. You suck life out of one another. You destroy one another's good names and so forth. He says, um, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, you notice here, James, he doesn't, it doesn't matter that he's never been to these churches. It doesn't matter that he doesn't actually know any of these Christians. He can say with absolute authority, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? I'll tell you. It's envy and covetousness. It's the things you want and it's the resentment that is produced towards one who has what you think You need to be happy. So putting all this together, we see that contrary to our fallen instincts and contrary to popular opinion, there is zero correlation between happiness and all the things we covet. There is zero correlation between happiness and what we think we need for our happiness. There is zero correlation between happiness and the people we envy because we think they have it. On the other hand, there is an extremely high correlation between happiness and contentment. There is an extremely high correlation between happiness and being at peace with who God has made you 
and the circumstances in which he has placed you and the things which he has given you. Now, here's a thought experiment. Think of the happiest people that you have ever known. I've thought about this. The happiest people I have ever known, they have not been the handsomest or the prettiest or the richest or the smartest or the most popular or the most talented or the best athletes or the most sparkling personalities. But they have without exception been Christians who rested in God and therefore were content. They have been Christians who were at peace with who God has made them and at peace with what God has given them, both in terms of their personal traits, strengths and weaknesses, and their possessions. And so I would urge you to pursue contentment and to purge coveting and envying from your hearts. Recognize it when it starts to rear its ugly head and stomp down on it. Have nothing to do with it. Focus in on God. Center your life on Him and pursue contentment. That's what Hebrews 13.5 is saying. Let your conduct, it says in the English, but in, in the Greek it's stronger than that. He says, let your way. In other words, your whole way of thinking and living, let your whole way of thinking and living be completely free of covetousness and envy. Instead, let contentment, peace with who God has made you and what he has given you, let that be the beautiful aroma that pervades your life. So how do we do that? How do we pursue contentment and purge coveting and envy from our hearts. Well, the first thing we have to understand is that contentment is not an end in itself. Rather, it is a fruit. It is a byproduct. So if you go straight at contentment, if you try to lay directly hold of it, it's going to run away from you. You're never going to have it. It is the fruit or byproduct of actively pursuing God. That's what you have to do. You have to pursue God and his kingdom in good times and bad while resting in him for the results. You must pursue God and his kingdom in good times and bad while resting in him for the results. Now, the Bible speaks to us. It speaks to this issue both in the context of good times and bad times because while the key is the same, that's actively pursuing God and his kingdom, what we have to guard against most is a little bit different uh, from, uh, from good times to bad times as we see this dealt with in Scripture. What we have to guard against most in good times is forgetting. Forgetting God because we forget that every good thing that we can come by in this life is the gift of God for which we should ever be thankful to him. That's what we have to guard against most in good times, forgetting God because we have forgotten that every good thing we can come by in this life 
is the gift of God. James 1.16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Why does he say that? Because it's easy to be deceived in this area. It's easy to think that, oh, good things just come our way. It's easy to think that, oh, well, I have, through my, my brilliance and hard work, I have earned all of this, and I've created this wealth, and I have obtained this good thing. We, dis, we disconnect the gift from the giver. When you disconnect the gift from the giver, you forget that the gift is a gift. And then you forget about the giver. When you keep the gift and the giver connected, you remember the true nature of every good thing, which is it's a gift. And you remember who it's from. It's from the Father of lights, according to James. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is a great passage which really gets into this problem because here God has brought Israel through the desert for 40 years and now they're about to enter the promised land, the land of plenty. And God is speaking to them through Moses to make sure that they get the lessons that they're supposed to be learning from the desert as they move into the land of plenty. Verse 2, Remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Verse 3, So he humbled you, he allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, that he may make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 5, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. In other words, in the desert, he's analogizing Israel to a son. In the desert is when the son is very little. He's a child. He's a little boy. And so God has to make very clear the lessons he is teaching. So God takes his people out into the middle of the desert where they have no normal means of getting food and water. And he puts them in a situation where they are clearly, obviously, and visibly, and daily completely dependent upon God from everything. If God doesn't give them manna every day, they don't eat. If God doesn't give them water from the rock, they don't drink. So God is literally handing them everything they need. So the lesson is really clear. Everything comes from the hand of God. Now that they're about to enter the land of plenty, God wants them to realize that what was true in the desert is true in the land of plenty. It's going to look different. Because I'm not going to be directly handing you everything. Here, now I'm going to give you a land that produces plenty of food and water everywhere. I'm going to give you the power to get wealth yourself. And through that means, I am going to now give you good gifts. But you see what he's doing is he's growing up his son. He's growing up his people. They need to be more mature now. They need to be able to be given 
the power to get wealth and yet still remember that this is the gift of God just as surely as if God were handing us this food and handing us this drink and handing us all these good things that we have. He says in verse 7, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Verse 9, A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. Verse 10, When you have eaten and are full, and you, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Verse 12, Lest when you have eaten and are full... And have built beautiful houses. Verse 13. When your herds and flocks have multiplied. Your silver and gold have multiplied. And all you have is multiplied. Verse 17. Then you say in your heart. My power. And the might of my hand. Has gained me this wealth. And you shall remember. It is the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power. To get wealth. That he may establish his covenant. In other words. This is part of God's plan from the beginning to grow us up, to grow us up to maturity so that we have the wisdom to understand that just because that God has given us the power to get wealth, it's still true what was true in the desert. Every good thing comes from God's hand. Every good thing that we can receive in this life, even if we have earned the money and purchased it, every good thing we can receive is the gift of God just as much as if God wrapped it in Christmas paper and stuck it under the Christmas tree. It is just as much of a gift. He says, in conclusion, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, I testify against you this day, you will surely perish. Once again, what was true in the desert is just as true in the land of plenty. So that's the main thing we have to guard against in good times, forgetting God because we have forgotten that every good thing we can receive is from the hand of God. Now, one of the best ways which God has given us to remember that every good thing is the gift of God, is the tithe. Now, tithe in the Bible literally means tenth part. And a tenth part of the increase that he has given us in a given year. This is God's way for us to remember and formally acknowledge that he is our king and every good thing we receive comes from him just as surely as if he had personally handed it to us. Now, we don't have time to get into this in detail, but let me just quickly point out that the tithe in the Old Testament is connected to the tribute offering, which you will often see referred to in your English Bibles as the grain offering. Now, while that offering did involve grain in the form of fine flour with oil and frankincense. The Hebrew word here does not mean grain. It means tribute. A tribute was a gift, but a special gift. It was the gift that you would publicly give to a king to acknowledge him as your king. Think of the Magi when they brought their gifts to Jesus. Those were tribute gifts to publicly acknowledge Jesus as the king and their king. 
So that's the role of the tithe by God's design. And so that is one of the best ways. It's one of the ways that God has given us not only to acknowledge him as a king, but also to remind us the true nature of every good thing. Now, uh, a question that the elders often get um, from uh, different people and different families is, what about a situation where I just simply, I can't give a tenth part? I can't give a tenth part. Um, And let me just say that other than a couple of deacons, nobody knows what you're giving. I don't know what you're giving. We don't care. We're not trying to look into that. We don't want your tax returns. Um, But the thing is, oftentimes we have find Christians in circumstances who would like to tithe, but just financially they can't. Here's the way that we would recommend you handle that. Go before the Lord in prayer. Number one, don't, don't go into debt so that you can tithe. That, that's just violating a different command in order to keep another one. And don't sacrifice your family. But go to the Lord and pray and say, Lord, I want to be able to tithe. I can't do that right now, as you well know. I'm asking for you to have mercy on me and to bless me and get me into a situation where I can, and I can do that. Then in the meantime, write a check for a dollar. Write a check for a dime. But come forward, because again, when you owned a king as your king through the tribute diff, that was not a private thing. That was a public thing. And that's why we we do the presentations of the offerings the way we do. And we're not throwing rocks at any other churches who do it different ways. I'm just letting you know why is it that we have that uh, during the doxology uh, during the service. It's because what the Magi did and what you did when you presented a tribute offering to a king was a public act, not a private act. And so, like I say, write a check for a dime. Come forward and put it. Give your tribute to Christ. Acknowledge him as your king while praying that he's going to put you in a different situation so that you really can tithe. Nobody knows what you're giving. But let your, let your children see you come forward and publicly own Christ as king. So what about then hard times? We've already talked about uh, good times where we have to guard against most forgetting God. In hard times, according to the scriptures, what we have to guard against most is becoming envious of the wicked, becoming envious of the wicked, fixating on them either because we want to be like them and we're going to try to imitate them, or fixating on them because we become uh, kind of embittered and resentful and we're fixated on them in that way. And I want to point out to you two psalms that specifically speak to all this, and that is Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. Now, there's a lot of other scriptures that address this, but these two psalms in particular, Psalm 37 is written by David in his old age after he's gathered all that wisdom. And Psalm 73 is written by Asaph, 
But both of these psalms are basically tutorials on what it means to actively pursue God and his kingdom in hard times while resting in God for the results. Let's look at the kind of environment in which David was writing and Asaph was writing in these two psalms. In Psalm 37, David talks about evildoers and workers of iniquity, verse 1, who prosper in their way and bring wicked schemes to pass, verse 7, who plot against the just, verse 12, who draw the sword and bend the bow to slay the upright, verse 14, and indeed sometimes they succeed and the righteous, the good man, falls, verse 24. Asaph was writing about times in Psalm 73 where the boastful and the wicked are prospering, verse 3. Where the boastful and the wicked have no pangs in their death, verse 4. They're not troubled like other men, verse 5. They're proud and they're violent, verse 6. They're wealthy and they have more than heart could wish, verse 7. They plot and boast how they will oppress, verse 8. And they exalt themselves, setting their mouths against heaven. In other words, they exalt themselves like gods, verse 9. Now, can anybody identify with any of this today? It sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? That's the environment in which these two men were writing these two psalms. So what did David and Asaph say to us? How do we go about this? Number one, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Watch out for becoming envious of the wicked. Look at Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret, which means don't get all worked up. If you're wondering what that is, men, it's what happens when you watch the news. Or oftentimes your football team. You get all worked up. Do not fret. Don't get all worked up because of evildoers. Nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Do not get fixated on them. Verse 8. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Now, in Psalm 73, Asaph talks about the other kind of fixation upon the wicked, where he envied them. He wanted to be like them. He was going, what's the point of me trying to be different? Verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Verse 3, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And in verse 13, he says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. What's the point? Secondly, so that's number one, guard your heart. Secondly, actively pursue God and his kingdom while resting in him for the results. Look at all the different ways this is described for us in Psalm 37. Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in God and do good today. Trust in the Lord, do good today. Do good with your family. Do good at your work. Dwell in the land, he says. Feed on God's faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Cultivate the delight of the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord in prayer. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light 
and your justice as the noonday. Verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, and only causes harm. For, long term, this is what's going to happen. Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. That is what's going to happen. It's not up in the air. This is a certainty. It just happens a lot slower a lot of times than we would like. He says, yet a little while the wicked shall be no more. You will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But, and here is what Jesus is quoting in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now, meek sounds like weak. And that's what a lot of Christians think. But meek is the opposite of weak. It was a term that was often used with horses, of battle horses. A meek horse was a battle horse who was completely yielded to the rider. It was a powerful horse that was completely yielded to the rider. A meek person is a strong person, a strong Christian, who is completely yielded to God. Jesus was meek in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but your will be done. Now, is that weakness or is that strength? That strength in being yielded to God. That's what meekness is. Psalm 73, verse 17. Now here he's saying, why have I cleansed my soul? He's envious of the wicked. Then in chapter, I mean, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. In other words, he comes to church into the presence of God's people to worship God and to hear the, the word of God. And then he understands his eyes are open. And he understands their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. And he looks back on his previous attitude. Verse 21. I was foolish. I was ignorant. And yet I am continually with you. Because of the grace of God. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterwards receive me to glory. Now listen how he fixates now, focuses in on the Lord. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So this is what our text is talking about in Hebrews 13 when it quotes the two different passages from the Old Testament. Verse 5 quotes Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. This is just before the people are going into the land where God has already told them there are seven nations in the land and every single one of them is more powerful than you are. I just wanted you to know that. That's what God says. But then he says, I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6 quotes 
Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now that is the same psalm that says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, which is quoted multiple times in the New Testament as applied to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The point being here is that these are not simply encouraging verses from the Old Testament. They are both verses that have to do with kingdom warfare and kingdom conquest in the face of overwhelming opposition. That's the context of both those verses. And this is God's personal promise. I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is on our side. We shall not fear. What can man do to us? So in conclusion, coveting and envy are two of the most destructive forces in the world. They work harm to the object, the one who is being envied, the one who is being, uh, their stuff is being coveted, but they also work harm to the source. Letting envy and covetousness find a place in your heart is like swallowing battery acid. It is harmful. It is poison. They produce chaos. They produce every evil thing in every context in which they appear. So as Christians, and indeed for our own happiness, we must be characterized by contentment, being at peace, with who God has made us, being at peace with the circumstances in which he's placed us, being at peace with the things he has given us. That is the beauty that must characterize our lives. There must be no place for coveting and envy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.